Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We thought it was really important to t- take a tour of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum here in Washington, which was created, what, 30-plus years ago uh, by the U.S. government to remember what happened during the Holocaust, because if we don't remember, uh, God forbid, uh, it could be re- repeated. Yeah. So I took a tour with Sarah Bloomfield, the longtime uh, museum director, who's an amazing woman. Indeed, all of the people who work at the museum are really amazing. The hardworking, dedicated, devoted, all those who were involved in founding and creating the museum. They deserve a lot of our credit. And millions of people have toured the Holocaust Museum in Washington. It's so important. So I wanted to take take our viewers on a tour. And so I walked around. Uh, Watch this exchange I had with Sarah Bloomfield, the museum director. We're speaking about the shoes, the shoes that are on an exhibit at the museum. Watch this. These are shoes, old shoes. This is one of our most iconic exhibits. If you visit these killing centers today, you see thousands upon thousands of shoes like this, the shoes of the victims. The Germans took their shoes because they were going to reuse them and recycle them, if you will. But of course, the victims would be killed. But this is what is left of those lives. These shoes, what are 80, 90 years old, and they're here, the only surviving elements for all those people who were exterminated. This is the trace of a people before they were gassed. I think of those shoes, you know, uh, my four grandparents, we didn't have anything. Nothing was found, basically. It's just a horrendous, horrendous situation. It's so important, so timely now to remind people who don't know anything about it. And I think it's so important, I'm sure you'll agree, Jim, that people who come to visit Washington, go to the Washington Mall, Raoul Wallenberg Place, 14th Street, and take a tour of this museum. Uh, Even those of us who have grown up children of Holocaust survivors, we learn a lot every time we go there. And it's so, so powerful, so important. I've been. I plan to go back. Wolf Blitzer, it's great to have you on. Uh, Again, Wolf's new special report, Never Again, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, airs tonight on CNN at 11 o'clock Eastern time. News continues, so let's hand it over. I I called you the great Laura Coates last time. I'm going to call you the super great Laura Coates tonight and CNN tonight. Well, I love it. Tomorrow maybe the super wonderful great. I don't know. But nice to see you, Jim. Thank you so (laughs) much. And I'm glad that everyone will know at 11 p.m. tonight, right after this, That documentary will show with Wolf Blitzer. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Now, I know, frankly, you've already seen the big headline. The affidavit we've all been waiting for, it's here. I mean, yes, the search warrant affidavit to search Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate is out, and it says that 184 classified documents, including some that were top secret, were recovered from Mar-a-Lago in January. Now, we've seen this headline and we've gone through parts of it, but tonight we're learning more and more of the why. Why federal investigators believe that there was more, 
why they needed to search the place in that way. Now, I'm not here to simply rehash a headline. I, frankly, I heard it nine hours ago. I want to go beyond it. And I want to really understand what's in that document and what is not in what we've been shown in these 38 pages. And I also want to know who it matters to and for what reason. We keep hearing about this entire thing and truly this affidavit as some kind of an ink blot test. So we're going to approach it a little bit differently tonight. I'm going to look at it at this affidavit through sort of different lenses, kind of like the ink blot. What are you seeing versus this person? I'm going to break it down collectively, methodically. First, we start with the facts, as we always should, so everyone's on the same page and we know exactly what is here. And I'll talk to three journalists who've been steeped in this since day one. We're going to go and parse through the facts line by line. Things like this line, just how top secret were these 184 documents, for example? I mean, you see this excerpt here? A lot of acronyms, I admit, in Alphabet City at Washington, D.C. is, but it means that the documents had indications that contained human source intelligence in them, national defense intelligence, and more. And we're going to dig into what that really means. And what does the Justice Department mean when it says there are, quote, a significant number of civilian witnesses? Just what did they know? And what does that number mean? And what is the context? And how did they help this investigation? Former president, he can't possibly be taking this well. People in his midst were talking to investigators. I'm going to get into that, too. And then after our journalists, I'm going to talk to our legal and investigative pros. They're on this set right now, and they've got their copies of the affidavit. We're going to see what they think of and what goes through their minds and how to view it through their expert eyes and how they look at a line like this one. Quote, there is also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at the premises. Do they think there was enough probable cause? We're going to break it all down. And then, of course, there's this. And I want you to focus on, at some points, the minutia. Not just the 38 pages and all the words that are there, but let's focus on a single letter. The little E you see in parentheses there. That is a specific part of the Espionage Act. And it's a detail, frankly, we didn't actually know about before. But what it could mean for Trump and his allies, we're going to delve into that. And after that, I'm going to talk politics and look at how all of this might come out in the wash. This is a political attack on our country, and it's a disgrace, and the people understand it. Do they? How are the voters, a la the people, understanding it and viewing it? I've got three politics pros to break it down for us, but let's just admit, this so far is like the biggest puzzle piece that we've gotten so far into the search warrant. We've received it to, we've got a lot of information, but to date, this is the biggest puzzle piece. And now I want to talk specifics about what it tells us and the overall picture that it now creates, and most importantly, what it means. Let's go to our three top reporters, CNN Justice Correspondent Jessica Schneider, CNN National Correspondent Kristen Holmes, and Politico's Senior Legal Affairs Reporter Kyle Cheney. I'm so glad to see you all here. We've been waiting for this information. Although it's redacted, there is a lot there. Kyle, let me begin with you here, because now we know the tally of classified info just in those January boxes, right? 184 classified documents, 67 confidential, 92 secret, 25 top secret. And what's more, 
Some of these docs had an alphabet soup of markings like HCS and SI and ORCON. What was so alarming to the investigators about this? Well, that, that alphabet soup you just described is really gave us the best sense of why the Justice Department took this as seriously as they did. HCS, human, human source intelligence, you know, people out there risking their lives to get intelligence to the United States are in this information sitting in a, in a unsecured basement, essentially. Uh, things like uh, special intelligence, things that are gathered from foreign intercepts uh, that, again, some of the most highly classified and protected secrets that the U.S. government has sitting in a box somewhere mixed in with other materials, personal items, things that have nothing to do with uh, this kind of information. And so uh, that's, again, you just said that's the 15 boxes that were given back to the archives in January. Uh, that's not including what was discovered there subsequently when DOJ went to visit and then in the search. So they not only were alarmed by what they received voluntarily back in January, but then have discovered more information we still have a lot of insight into. So presumably it's even more uh, alarming than that. That's a really important point we have to underscore. This is information in the affidavit before they executed the search warrant. This is what they were using to justify the search that we heard about two weeks ago. And Jessica, to that point, I mean, a major point that was mostly redacted in the affidavit was on page 26. And it says there is probable cause to believe that documents contain classified NDI Mm. and presidential records remain at the premises. And, of course, they were right about it. They got a dozen more boxes on August 8th. And even though on June 3rd, the dates are in order, on June 3rd, Christina Bob, who is Trump's attorney, said that all classified material had already been returned. So what does the affidavit signal about maybe potential charges here, knowing that timeline? It gives a lot more details as to what investigators were building on. Because remember, we saw in the search warrant application that was released recently that investigators, they're specifically focusing on three different criminal statutes that include willful retention of national defense information, concealment of government records, and obstruction. And what we're seeing now is the unredacted parts of this affidavit really give us the glimpses of how investigators are building their case on all three of those. So we see how extensive the classified information was that they retrieved in January and how it did cover, in fact, national defense information, which is in this willful retention statute. Mm -hmm. You know, the affidavit, you mentioned it, Laura, it refers several times to obstruction, saying that these investigators believed, in fact, they would find evidence of obstruction at Mar-a-Lago when they served that search warrant. And then concealment of the records. You know, that's seen in the back and forth with the archives, Trump's team, the fact that they weren't relinquishing this material. And then you mentioned, you know, June 3rd. That was when Trump's lawyers signed that affidavit saying that there was no more information at Mar-a-Lago, which we obviously know was not true because of the search warrant and what was um, taken then, including 11 sets of classified documents. So the question is, you know, does that letter play any part in this obstruction or concealment criminal statute? So a lot of questions here, but we're getting a bit more information as to the underlying information tonight in the affidavit. So important to think about, the idea of that certification saying there's nothing else here, and then having these boxes removed even after this search warrant. And Kristen, to you, I mean, the DOJ mentions that it's trying to protect civilian witnesses. They've got all these redactions. How do you think Trump's people are seeing this, this idea of all of the redacted information, but It's covering up, likely, the names of people who've been instrumental in providing probable cause basis. 
Well, Laura, this idea and focus on witnesses and a potential mole or moles has been something that has been floating around Trump world since the search. Did somebody flip? Did multiple people flip? How did the FBI know exactly where to go? And I cannot tell you the number of sources who called me and pointed the finger at someone else saying it had to be this person. And that just goes to show you the paranoia that happens when you work for Trump or around him. But underneath that, I want to point out one thing, which is that we have reported that federal investigators talked to a number of aides down at Mar-a-Lago, including Molly Michael, his executive assistant, who was the point of contact for the National Archives, among others who went down from the White House. So underneath all of that finger pointing, there is somewhat of an understanding that those aides' names are probably going to be in the document. And there's a lot of questions about whether or not there was somebody or multiple people who flipped, who gave a lot of information specifics, or if this was some sort of culmination of these interviews with aides that we know happened at Mar-a-Lago. And the other thing that I want to point out here, and this is, you know, Kyle mentioned this, how there's a lot of discussion about the classified documents being found among just regular documents, being completely unfolded, uh, unidentified in the midst of personal you know, correspondence as well as photos and letters. And I spoke to a number of former Trump staffers, both from the White House and from Mar-a-Lago, who said they were not at all surprised to hear this because of Trump's poor record keeping, that he was known to walk around the White House or Mar-a-Lago, pick up boxes, go through, rifle through, move stuff from one box to another without any sort of reasoning behind it, that he also was known to pick up important records and documents and write on them, even though aides told him him not to. Uh, And I had one source point out to me that he was always showing off some Mm. of these presidential records, including those love letters with Kim Jong-un. Essentially, another example here of how there was no real system in place, nobody actually watching what was going on here. So again, they were not surprised to see that. Laura? Kyle, Cheney, Kristen Holmes, thank you so much. Jessica, I'll see you here in studio after the break. It's just astonishing to think about. I mean, it's one thing to talk about alphabet city and alphabet soup, but to think about all of this being mixed together as if each thing does not mean something in terms of a classification is truly stunning. Look, we're just getting started as we examine the impact of this affidavit. We're going to go through the paperwork with FBI, with DOJ veterans, and we're going to examine the legal exposure for Donald Trump, who one ally says, quote, really needs a competent defense attorney. That person's name, Captain Obvious. Right back. All right, so one thing the redacted yet revealing affidavit does not do is point the finger directly at Donald Trump and allege specifically that he committed a crime. It doesn't accuse, frankly, anyone of actually committing a crime. That's not really how affidavits work, though, in probable cause findings. But we do know that the former president and his legal team, they huddled earlier this week at his New Jersey golf club. And it wasn't necessarily to hit the links. Some of his allies are telling us they're concerned about what's in the affidavit. And one of those allies says Trump, quote, really needs a competent defense attorney, even more so now, which suggests he maybe doesn't have one at the moment. Let's talk about the potential legal fallout of all of this. Jessica Snyder is back with us. And not only is she a reporter, but she is also a lawyer, which is why we like her so much, of course. We also have former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Elliot Williams and former FBI Cuba Counter Espionage Peter Strzok. We like you, too, anyone who's not a lawyer, okay? (laughs) FYI, don't feel badly about it. Look, I mean, first of all, 
Peter, think about this. You have obviously overseen a number of investigations. You know how this looks. You know how there's been a lot of backlash. But then is this kind of vindication that they were able to find things? The affidavit says, hey, here is what we were looking for. They didn't have a whole black-lined redacted memo for the entire thing. Is this some uh, form of vindication for those who have doubted why this took place? I don't know that I'd call it so much vindication as just a confirmation that DOJ and the FBI are doing things exactly right. They're doing things in accordance with the law. They're doing things by the book. And I think, look, when you see what's here in front of us unredacted, it's a really disturbing tale. But keep in mind, half of this, 18 pages easily, are completely blacked out. So the things that investigators are looking at, the real critical items that show people trying to obstruct, that show why they think there's still classified information there, we don't know what's there because that's all still redacted. So, uh, you know, this significant number of civilian witnesses, it's a line that's sort of nestled on the first page and they don't make a big deal about it. They reference the number of witnesses again once in the document on page five. You know, it debunks this idea that, uh, number one, they hadn't adequately or effectively uh, planned or prepped or prepared for this before executing. Like They just swept in and did a raid on Mar-a-Lago. What this suggests is that this wasn't one disgruntled maid at Mar-a-Lago that picked up the phone and called the FBI, but that the Justice Department and the FBI uh, had spent a significant amount of time building witnesses, working evidence, before they even uh, got got in in the door of Mar-a-Lago. Which makes sense, right, to think about this, Jessica, because there's significant... I mean, you don't have a probable cause finding that a judge is going to say, oh, former president, how many got? You got one witness? Great, bring the person in. And not only, to Peter's point, did the DOJ do things by the book here, but they gave significant deference to Trump's legal team. They tried to work with the legal team. It it goes through this timeline even more in depth in this affidavit. The fact that the National Archives referred this to the Justice Department in February. Then it was sort of sat on until mid-May when the FBI was finally able to go through those boxes and see just how highly classified the material was inside. Throughout this process, they're going back and forth with Trump's lawyers giving them the opportunity to cooperate and give this back. And that actually, this, all this back and forth actually supports the idea of an obstruction of justice charge because of the fact that the president and his team were put on notice that they have these documents and were asked multiple times, both by the National Archives and Records Administration and the, and the Justice Department, to turn them over. But it right? also supports this idea that I mean, what your FBI... What took so long? How much deference do you give? I mean, I know it is a former president, but there's that phrase, no one above the law. I don't know the average civilian that gets to have a back and forth, back and forth when I think you have what I want. I think it definitely takes time because keep in mind, just at the archives, they needed to get it back. And once they did, they had to look at it to figure out that there was stuff that they thought potentially was classified that they needed to refer to the FBI. There was back and forth about whether that information could be shared, whether they needed a subpoena. But, you know, to Elliot's point, I think what's really critical, what sticks in my mind as part of all this process is that June meeting down at Mar-a-Lago between the Department of Justice and Trump's attorneys, where they tell him, look, you do not have a place at Mar-a-Lago that is certain certified and legally can be used to store classified information. They follow that up with a letter two days later, and the attorneys write back saying letter received. So what, on the one hand, you see DOJ sort of being cautious, but what they're also doing is papering the record Mm. to show you can't do this, it's against the law, and we're telling you, not once, not twice, but multiple times. And the lawyers in response, I mean, they were responding, right, to say what they had or did not have, and at one point, as we know, even saying nothing else is here, and then lo and behold... The receipt that came from that search on Mar-a-Lago indicated that they 
actually had more there. There, I want to go into a little bit of the minutia, Elliot, because hidden with the affidavit, I want you to uh, come in as well as Jessica. There is the lowercase e hidden in the code. This is what tells you there's lawyers at the table who are like, <laughs> turn your page the little tiny e. That's the focus here. It's 18 U.S.C. 793 e, and it relates to the Espionage Act, saying the code it, the code doesn't use the term classified information. Right. It doesn't mean that mishandling though declassified docs could also be a crime. Right. Um, so, um, and we've gotten on this classification and declassification train that somehow, if the president had declassified these documents, therefore there would have been no crime committed. And that's simply not accurate. Now, look, there's a number of other problems and regulations when you mishandle um, sensitive or classified information, but merely having certain documents in your possession is itself uh, possibly a criminal offense. And that's yeah. what they're getting at here. And it's not just the idea, Jessica, right, that they're just, you know, I know oftentimes the government's accused of overclassifying everything. They over, you know, prosecutors can die a ham sandwich, they classify the McDonald's wrapper, right? But this, they actually go through a lot of different categories here. And that's very shocking, just the breadth. It, it is. And, and some of the people who I've spoken with who routinely have or, or in the past have dealt with this type of information, they've been appalled when this yeah. came out today, just how highly classified this information was that was sort of haphazardly thrown around in boxes at Mar-a-Lago. You're talking about information that implicates human sources that are operating around the world, that if that information gets out, they could be targeted, they could be jailed, they could be killed. Yeah. Um, so yes, this is extremely sensitive information in many different realms. You've handled this information, yeah. Peter. I mean, this is... You're talking about, can you imagine a post-it note here, a calendar here, and then classified and this highly sensitive material there? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, the way, when you start talking about top secret information, that's sensitive compartmented information containing things like, you know, we saw the acronym HCS, or Human Control System. This is dealing with human sources at a level that you might be able to not only know what they're reporting on, but in the hands of the wrong person, say in China, in mm-hmm. Russia, in Cuba, they could figure out specifically who is providing that information, go out, round them up, shoot them, you know, imprisonment for life would be the worst case. But this is handled at the most restrictive levels in the United States government. And this this idea that it's just flooding around Mar-a-Lago is crazy. Uh, So, you know, a number of us around this table have had uh, security clearances before. It can't be said enough what even the words top secret mean. And top secret documents weren't even the most secure document, the most sensitive documents. Top secret means that if it were to be disclosed, it could cause, quote, exceptionally grave harm to U.S. national security. That is a big deal. You're not talking about someone's social security number or background information. These are actually important national security documents. And to your point, everyone, I mean... I hope people realize the human in the human sourcing information and that this could be foreign assets as well. So you could think about what our global standing is at a time when just two years ago we were talking about trying to redeem ourselves in the eyes of the global intelligence community. Stick around, everyone. Jessica, Peter, Elliot, thank you so much. Look, we're going to move to the political impact for Trump in an investigation he claims is entirely political. Does the affidavit disprove that notion? That was rhetorical. That's next. All right, we talked about the legal fallout so far. So now to the political fallout from today's blacked out bombshell. Donald Trump and his defenders are talking more about persecution than prosecution. They say the whole thing is political, which... We've heard this trend before. Even this spokesman tweeted, quote, the release of the heavily redacted, overtly political affidavit only proves that the Biden administration 
is desperate to cover up their unprecedented, unnecessary, and un-American raid against President Donald J. Trump, unquote. So is this how their argument will look as Trump maybe ponders a 2024 run? Let's talk about it now with former Democratic Senator Doug Jones, Alice Stewart, who worked for the GOP Senator Ted Cruz, and Ramesh Panuru from the National Review. Glad to have you all here. Look, this We've heard in many ways, as Yogi Bear would say, deja vu all over again. The idea that persecution, this is a political hit job, the witch hunt, a different iteration now being used. I mean, it's a 38-page document. Obviously, the length doesn't dictate whether it's political or not. But in going through it, it does not ring political. You've been a U.S. attorney. What is your thought? There's nothing in there that's political. Not one sentence, not one word, not one period comma, whatever. There's nothing in that document that is political. It is standard fare. It is setting forth uh, some pretty serious allegations. It gives the statutes. It gives the classifications. It really sets forth a document. There's nothing in that that would indicate political. And, And by the way, anybody that's ever done any federal criminal work or any state criminal work that's ever been involved in a high profile or even a low level public official, the Defense de jour is it's political. It's political. It's political. But, you know, I mean, and, and some of them are. But if someone has committed a crime, it really needs to be prosecuted. We're and not, that's yeah. the issue here. We're not here yet with the prosecution. You obviously know. But but the sort of the talking point will be fine. This is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You got 38 pages of one. You want to go after him. You're going to go after him. So the reason you're targeting him in the first place is that. Is that what the talking point is? Uh, yes. Look, me personally, I think Donald Trump should not have had these documents. He did not store them properly. When he was asked to return them, he should have done so immediately. And ignorance is not a defense, and there should be consequences. Mm-hmm. Even Karl Rove, who is a fan of Trump, has said he should not have had these. It's in violation of the Presidential Records Act. But there is the other facet of the Republican uh, Party. Many view him as the victim. They look at what the DOJ and the FBI has done as going after him as a, a prosecutorial uh, witch hunt. And they, they look at this 38-page document. About two-thirds of it is redacted. And while they do respect uh, covering up for uh, sources and methods, they say that a lot of this heavily redacted material is a way to avoid transparency. Mm. And they say that the DOJ and FBI are doing bidding for the Democratic Party. And many Republicans who were ready to turn their back on Trump and look to someone else in 2024 now view him as a victim or a martyr, and they're ready to get on board and support him. What do you think, Ramesh? I mean, the idea here, in fact, and you mentioned ignorance, Alice, and um, part of the ignorance, I don't mean it in just a pejorative way, you try to, if you're talking about a narrative, you want to capitalize on what you don't know, what the, what the electorate might not know. Maybe he does declassify. I mean, President Biden came out to talk about the idea of the notion of you can declassify in a blanket way. Listen to this. The fact that he declassified all these documents. Could he have just declassified them all? Well, I just want to know I've declassified everything in the world. I'm president. I can do it all. Come on. Without a specialized area in which you would declassify documents, is it ever appropriate for a president to bring classified documents? It depends on the document and it depends on how secure we're bringing it. I mean, Ramesh, for him, home is like upstairs, to be fair. Not Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. I, I'm actually, I don't disagree with what the president said. I'm not sure that it was wise for him mm. to engage on this level to begin with. This is such a delicate question. Even if the law does call for having done this 
search of a former president's home. I think that it, it reasonably raises all sorts of questions, and the president should keep as much of it at arm's length, the sitting president, that is, as he can. On the other questions involved in this, you know, I think that it is going to become harder and harder to make any argument for Trump on the possession of these documents. It just seems to me just a slam dunk case that that was government material. Now, the question of whether he should be prosecuted for anything that is related to that, that's a different question. And that will affect the politics of this. And what you're going to see a lot is a word that I haven't heard so far tonight on CNN, Hillary Clinton, right? The argument is two words. That's why. Two words. (laughs) The arguments are going to, the argument's going to be, this is not the even-handed application of justice. Sure, the, you know, it was foolish for Trump's spokesman to say it's overtly political, this affidavit. It's not, obviously not overtly political. But if some people, David Petraeus, Hillary Clinton, get pretty light sort of slaps on the wrist for the mistreatment of of classified material, for the recklessness with national security, people who support Trump or people who are just sympathetic to him or people who just think maybe he's not even a good guy, but the, but the, you're nodding along. There has been persecution. I I, I, I don't disagree with that at all from a political side. And that's the one thing that I, it's just absolutely large with no disrespect to the media. It's driving me crazy. Everybody's making this about Trump, Trump, Trump. And it's really about the documents, documents, documents. And it's about national security. And, and what we see from this document is that the FBI and the National Archives spent a lot of time trying to get these documents back. Clearly, the FBI looked at the documents that were classified, saw that there was a problem, continued to work to try to get these documents back. But that it's an important point that had been made. The FBI clearly looked at the documents that contained, contained in those 15 boxes, saw that there were some serious issues that they had to work on, mm. and decided to go after more. And we need to be talking about this in terms of there may not ever be a, a prosecution of this uh, of this yeah. case. Quite frankly, that would be fine if there was none. But getting these documents back was very serious and needed to be done. Yeah, I read the affidavit is consistent with the prime thing is get these documents Absolutely. back. Absolutely. We're going to talk more about this. Stick around. Don't worry. I'll get back to you as well, everyone. I want to talk about what the voters actually might think about this, because that's part of what's happening in the court of public electoral opinion. A lot to think about in the next 74 days, even beyond Donald Trump's impact. Coming up, how candidates are changing their message to try and meet the moment. And that includes a Republican Senate hopeful scrubbing his website of strict views against abortion. Next. All right. The old pre-September shuffle with 74 days left until the midterms. Some candidates are trying to shift their message to appeal to a broader electorate outside the primary, like Arizona Republican Senate candidate Blake Masters, who is now softening his position on abortion. The 36-year-old scrubbed his website of his support of a federal personhood law and other strict anti-abortion positions. And across the aisle, Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger is leaning into abortion rights with a new ad. Take a listen. First, Yesley Vega cheered the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Next, Vega was caught on tape saying women can't get pregnant from rape. Yesley Vega is too extreme for Virginia. Well, back with me now, Doug Jones and Alice Stewart. They're joined by CNN political commentator Ashley Allison. Glad to have you all here. I mean, look, we're talking about, in many respects, this big news today, the affidavit and seeing all the information. The shadow of Donald Trump looms pretty big. But there is the midterm elections 70-something days away. 
And I'm sure they want to talk about anything but Trump. When you look at this, what is this messaging scrubbing really about? Is this just prudent? Is it disingenuous? What are your thoughts? First of all, Trump is not on the ballot in November. So that is a talking point that the Democrats love to to tout, but he's not on the ballot. And Democrats would love nothing more than to talk about anything but inflation, recession, high prices, rising crime, and inflationary factors across the board. They would certainly love that. But here's the thing. Abortion, when it has been on the ballot, specifically in Kansas and in uh, New York 19, when that is the the single issue and in the candidate in 19 made that the sole focus, it does galvanize people. I'll give it to the Democrats. They really got the women out. They got voters out. And abortion was a galvanizing issue. But as we move the next 74 days, Republicans are going to look at the real issues that everyday Americans across this country are concerned with, and that is the pocketbook issues, the kitchen table issues, the economy, and inflation. Republicans are going to focus on that, focus on what we are currently seeing with inflation and the, a bad economy. But the more the Democrats continue to spend, uh, like we just did with the Inflation Reduction Act, we, as we've done with uh, many climate change proposals, the more the Democrats spend, it gives more fuel for Republicans well, you say to go after. Suspend. I mean, you say spend, but <laughs> Biden would say success. That's his S-word. I agree. I mean, Trump is not on the ballot, but he definitely is looming in every election and endorsing candidates. And his endorsement has actually helped a lot of election deniers move through primaries and will be on the ballot, which is dangerous in and of itself. But I would say that these candidates who are scrubbing their websites from uh, with their stance on abortion, Maya Angelou says when somebody shows you who they are, believe it. We have to hold them to account. Just because you took something off the Internet doesn't mean it's not still real. You better believe that if Masters gets into uh, as a senator of Arizona, he will push to try and make a federal ban on abortion. He said it before and he would do it again. And voters know that. And I think they're running scared. Republicans, they did a lot of work for the 50 years to ban Roe, and now they did an overreach. The court did an overreach, and voters are going to come out. And it's not just women. It's not just young people. It's independent voters, Mm. and it is some Republicans, because this is an issue that we know that over 60 percent of Americans support a woman's right to choose. And if this is on, and it might not literally be on the ballot, but it is a part of the everyday life. Yeah. And and I, I... One, I I just I think Trump is on the ballot. His name's not on. But you look at everything. He is on the ballot. There is no question about it in most states and at least in the critical races. And I invite the American public to talk about the economy and to talk about things, because the thing that the American public want is somebody working for them, doing something. They may not agree on everything, but they want to see action taken. They want to see people out there trying to talk about it. There is not a single Republican candidate for the United States Senate that has a plan that has talked about how to reduce gas prices, which are coming down dramatically, which talks about how to uh, growth in our economy, which talks about the historic jobs and how they're going to match that if they get elected. At least this administration and the Democrats are giving the American people something that they can sink their teeth into. They want to see people doing some things in action. And you couple that with a contrast of Republicans who want to ban books, who have adopted cancel culture, who have decided that women should not be able to choose, that a bunch of folks in state capitals can do that for them. I think that contrast is dramatic. Alice totally agrees with everything well, you said. Right? So, one little thing with all due respect to the fine senator. Look. Democrats are going to have a really difficult time when this Inflation Reduction Act, which is anything but reducing inflation, doesn't follow through with that 
Why is it that Joe Manchin and other Democrats that have been asked by reporters and the people, when are we going to see uh, inflation reduce? No one has an answer. Tell so when, to, when people realize that, they're going to see no, that they were sold. Tell that to the seniors who have a $2,000 cap. That's right. Tell that to, the, to Medicare recipients who are going to see prices come down because they can negotiate. Tell that to the young folks who, for the first time ever, we are investing in climate with good-paying jobs that can do that. It is not going to have an inflation reduction in the immediate future. But people want to see fo- uh, reactions. They want to see people acting for and them. I would also, That's what they're going to see. And I would also say it's not just they want to see people acting. I think the American people also understand that it's Republicans that are preventing more from actually happening. And so not only are they saying we don't want a woman's right to choose, but we don't want to help you. We don't want to uh, cap insulin. We don't want gas prices to go down. We want to give corporations tax breaks and not middle America. And when you put that contrast together, the everyday American in my hometown of Youngstown, Ohio, know that they might not agree with everything, but it's Democrats that are going to fight for them and try and improve the quality and of Republicans their Republicans also didn't want to pay off student loan debt for people that... Oh, debt. that's another... Uh, don't that's another whole segment. <laughs> people that uh, worked hard to have no college debt now have college debt. Some. But Some. you know what? Their idea of incrementalism will probably fit into all these conversations. It's the idea of the old sort of curse of politics. Have you done enough? Is it too little? Is it too much? We'll see in November. Doug, Alice... And Ashley, thank you so much. And look, a much different debate ahead. Now, you know the Miranda warning, right? You can recite it. You've watched every Law & Order marathon every, what, New Year's Day and Sunday, too? Anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. But what about before someone gets arrested? And what if those words are actually in rap lyrics? The legal battle against two-star rappers, part of the conversation tonight. Next. So here's a question you're probably not hearing anywhere else. Could rapping about a crime ultimately get you convicted of that crime? Fulton County, Georgia DA Fannie Willis is thinking about it. Her team is handling the criminal cases against Atlanta rappers Young Thug and Gunna. Both men were arrested in May on suspicion of gang activity. And Willis says that she might just use lyrics from Thug's YSL Collective record label to help prosecute her case. Now, This is a controversial practice that's been going on and used for decades. But is it fair? Let's have the conversation now. And joining me is civil rights attorney and Temple University professor Timothy Welbeck. Professor, welcome to the program. I'm glad to have the conversation with you. Thank you for having me and thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. You know, for many people, you, know, you, you may have read the indictments, of course, out there, but I know you have. And the idea of thinking about that old phrase of anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Now, they normally mean in the course of an interaction with a police officer after a crime has actually occurred, right? But they are alleged to have occurred. Here, is this practice, should it be fair? Should it be used? Does it violate a constitutional or civil rights notion? Yeah, on its face, I generally discourage the practice. It's it's on its, it it leads to a First Amendment violation potentially, and also it has a potential chilling effect on artistic expression. You had a reference to the Miranda rights, and as you suggested, it's dealing with direct interactions with law enforcement. What's said in those moments could potentially be incriminating and used in legal proceedings. But artistic expression that one has used as a means to convey their lived experience or just delving into the depths of their imagination is not something that you should suffer criminal liability for. 
And yet, if you think about it, I mean, one could possibly say, look, I, I didn't confess to a crime. I didn't I, I wasn't wrapping my confession. It was my artistry at play here. And it could be used as the retort could be used to suggest that you're just couching it in that language to get first hand protection to avoid criminality and prosecution. But is it a practice in terms of what's being used? These are public statements. Why do you think Fannie Willis and other DAs really across the country have used this? Why shouldn't they be able to do so on the notion of, hey, then everyone's going to claim it's an artistic expression when it very well may be a confession? So that's a good question. On its face, again, if an artist is delving into various forms of creative expression, that should not impose some form of criminal liability. We don't do this with any other form of art. We haven't paraded Stephen King into court and asked him to give an account of the murderous intent of some of his novels or some of his films that are some films that were adapted from his novels. And similarly speaking, we shouldn't do this with hip hop artists as well. It's one thing if their lyrics signal information or knowledge of a crime that only the person who could have committed it would have known. That in and of itself is a different set of circumstances. But just blanket statements that people are making in the course and scope of their lyrics is not something that prosecutors should be using in court. And of course, we can't overlook the fact that we are talking about a particular genre of music that has a history of being stigmatized as being violent and is something that oftentimes is used to fuel existing stereotypes and even to create new ones, even unjustifiably, of course. Do you think that the stigma surrounding or the way in which people have traditionally um, come to understand over the course of at least modern musical history, rap music, that it's the genre itself that at times is on trial? Yeah, absolutely. And the genre has been in, on trial almost since its inception. At the point at which it entered into the mainstream populace and its attention that came with it, people have found, found ways to stigmatize it in part because it leads to a broader narrative of Black criminality. And it begins to paint narratives about young Black men and women who are said to have a greater propensity towards committing crimes and other violent acts. And so hip hop as a culture and rap as one of the forms of music and art that it has inspired is on trial, so to speak, when we have various conversations like this, particularly when you look at the long protracted history of public relations campaigns of people trying to not only censor rap and also stigmatize it, but further look at ways that they can say that this is a detrimental form of communication for the public. And in fact, you know, interestingly enough, as part of your work as a professor, you believe that infusing even lectures at time with different artistic expressions like rap, et cetera, can be a way for people to better understand a topic and an issue. Finally, real quick for you, Professor, on this point, because it's, it's, to me, a little bit striking about this very notion. And that is, are, are we seeing this with other forms of music? Are we seeing this used with, you mentioned Stephen King, for example, but it's in other jurisdictions, there's legislation around trying to protect artists in this very thing. Are we going going to see a bit of a blueprint created all across this country. I certainly would hope so. And I applaud the legislation in California and in New York that seek to limit the means in which we use rap lyrics to criminalize their their subjects. And particularly, it's requiring prosecutors to meet their constitutional burden. If these prosecutors are successful, they will deprive people of their life, their liberty, and their property. That requires due process according to the Constitution. And if you're just using rap lyrics, the evidence that you're presenting is insufficient. The burden's got to be there. And of course, you can't use anything to just to say that you seem like a criminal. Therefore, you must have done this crime. We call that unlawful propensity evidence. Thank you, Professor Timothy Welbeck. A very fascinating conversation. 
Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Still ahead, an FBI affidavit that's both redacted and revealing. Hey, welcome back to CNN Tonight. Don Lemon is off tonight. I'm still Laura Coates. Who could know that the greatest legal crisis Donald Trump may ultimately face started at his administration was on the way out the door? Not the January 6th insurrection, mind you. All the work of the select committee and the DOJ is not done there yet. But from the move that will never be forgotten. All those boxes sent to Mar-a-Lago and all those classified documents mixed into boxes like the ones movers hauled off these trucks and into his resort compound, nearly a thousand miles from where they were supposed to be as the 45th president returned, willingly or not, to civilian life. Scenes like this get a small mention in a 38-page affidavit written by an anonymous FBI agent to make the case to search Trump's Florida home. Now, the agent's identity, I said it's anonymous, is being kept confidential for their safety, of course, as the Bureau, as you know, faces growing threats. But what can we now read among the many redactions shows the much larger, well, indeed, grave fears about just how super secret these documents were supposed to be and how sloppily, at best, the government appears to believe that they were handled by Trump and his people once the papers got to Mar-a-Lago. Now, that's at best. But the affidavit also warns there is also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at the premises. Our Jessica Schneider has been poring over the documents and joins me here tonight. I mean, Jessica, what are the biggest takeaways from this affidavit? I mean, there's a lot there we didn't think it was going to be that much. Exactly. And we actually got a lot of new details here, intricate details, really talking about what they found in these 15 boxes that the National Archives retrieved back in January. This is separate and apart, of course, from the search warrant that was served just a few weeks ago on August 8th. And what's notable here is that 14 of the 15 boxes that they retrieved in January contained this classified information, and they broke down for us the types of classified information here. So it's broken down with 184 unique documents bearing the classification markings. In that, it includes 67 listed as confidential, 92 marked secret, 25 marked top secret. But you know, what was particularly alarming to intelligence experts who looked at this is just the markings on some of these documents indicating how highly sensitive and how uh, specifically classified they were. So I'm going to run through some of them Mm. so our viewers can see these, these markings. First of all, I'll run through the top three. I mean, ORCON, this is a document so sensitive that the originator of this document, the agency, actually has to give permission to get it released. Then you have uh, HCS. This is particularly alarming for a lot of people knowing that this was at Mar-a-Lago in a secure, unsecured area. This pertains to human intelligence, information from these human sources that if anything gets out and is known, uh, they could be in danger, they could be at risk. Also, no foreign. This is material that can't even be shared with foreign entities without permission foreign entities, even including allies. So it just shows you how highly sensitive these documents were that were in these boxes. Um, and not only that, but the, the archives talked when they referred this to DOJ 
just about how mismanaged these documents were. These were 15 boxes, not only filled with classified information, but all sorts of other things like records and notes. So this is what the archives told DOJ when they first referred this. They said that those boxes contained newspapers, magazines, printed news articles, photos, miscellaneous printouts, notes, presidential correspondence, all types of things, along with a lot of classified records. And then they said our most significant concern was that highly classified records were unfoldered, intermixed with other records, and otherwise unproperly identified. So really, I mean, quite simply, it was just a big mess with no care taken at all to the highly sensitive information that these boxes contained. I mean, the idea of this being treated like it's a junk drawer, right, where you pull something out, you've got everything flying around. And I want to note... One of the words you use, these are unique documents. So we can just take away that talking point that it's all these pages of one long document. These are separate things thrown together in different ways. Really, really stunning. Jessica, I know you just got a a hold as well of of other information we're going to get to later on in the program as well um, that relates to when Trump is supposed to respond to the special master request that he's already made and make that motion. We'll come right back to that as well on this very notion, give a chance to actually get through it in a really good way. And for a deeper dive analysis, I want to bring in Bradley Moss, a national security lawyer, John Wood, former U.S. attorney and senior investigator for the January 6th committee, and Phil Mudd, a former CIA counterterrorism official. Nice to have you all here, gentlemen. I mean, you just heard Jessica talk about just that alphabet soup and the idea of this being stuffed in different places, like it's almost like a junk drawer. I mean, Phil, when you hear about the classifications, the markings, some at these levels that are supposed to not even go to our allies, let alone just be put with a post-it note somewhere in a box somewhere down in Florida, what is your reaction? There's a couple things, mostly chaos and the chaos of an administration that didn't want to accept the election loss. When I saw the stories about the numbers of boxes, 15 boxes with documents, 14 of those boxes had classified documents, my takeaway was the president didn't want to accept the election results, obviously. And in the final days of his presidency, someone went around the White House, including maybe the Oval Office, and said everything from printouts, as you just heard, to other documents, unclassified documents, went in the box, along with classified stuff. Total chaos that reflects a transition where the president said, I don't want to go. Then you go to the other end at at Mar-a-Lago, and what I learned, one of the things I learned from the report today was how this stuff was stored. I assumed it was in one room that was at least decently secured. Hmm. That wasn't the takeaway I had from the report today. Multiple rooms, lack of security. So the chaos of a transition where the president wanted to deny the election, and then the lack of interest. I don't even think there's a strategy here. The lack of interest at Mar-a-Lago saying, I just don't care. That's what I take away, Laura. I mean, in that, in that um, notion, Brad, I mean, you are an attorney that specializes in security clearance law. I mean, you know these classifications like the back of your hand, I'm assuming, and I know is the case. The fact that this would be so carelessly handled. I mean, first of all, a lot is made about the different levels, the, the laws that might be implicated, the mere possession is likely to be enough in some respects to talk about it. But what would it be like in the average person who would have this sort of, you know, jambalaya of a junk drawer happening? What would be the consequences and what would you fear for those clients? 
Yeah, so I'll say for a normal individual who's hold, held a security clearance, they wouldn't get 18 months to return things. They wouldn't have all these accommodations made for them. Their clearances would have been yanked. Look, Donald Trump never held a security clearance. He never got proper training on how to handle classified documents. The only time he had access when he, was when he became president, and he got told, you can do whatever you want with them. You're the president. You can classify or declassify whatever you want. You can handle them however you want. So he never had to care about any of these rules that the rest of us have had to comply with. Well, Wait, Brad, does that mean then if he was he never was ever known and he may have been ignorant to the fact, does that somehow protect him? No, that the the I'm too dumb to realize how this worked is not going to be a defense for him. And what is critical here and why this became a criminal matter is not just that he took the documents to Mar-a-Lago and they were sitting there. If that's all it was and then he returned it all without a fight, there would never have been a criminal matter here. It would have been no harm, no foul. Why this became a problem was that he had the documents, he got told more than once, you can't have them there, they had to keep fighting with him to get it to turn over, and then he started relocating them, according to the affidavit. They're finding these documents in his personal residence, in his personal office. He was relocating these records. He could not do that. That's why he's in potential trouble. And to that point, John, I mean, first of all, some were in his office. They called it the 45 office at Mar-a-Lago. Um, initially, when this all came out, that there had been a search, there was a conversation around the idea of they've gotten, um, they've, they've broken different things. They may have a privilege issue. They're looking at everything. We learned now from the affidavit that there was actually a privilege team, an attorney-client privilege team who was de- separate from the investigative unit to make sure when they searched the office, they could anticipate and hopefully undermine any claims that they were hurting those privilege if there was something there. Um, but one of the things I'm, I'm most curious about, and you have raised this, you and I in our conversations, which is not really, it's not really addressed in the affidavit, is why? What is the motivation? Why did he have them? Why do they think he had them? I mean, going back and forth in all these ways, why do you still want what they told you you can't have? It, it's really bizarre, uh, and that is a big question that's not answered in the unredacted parts of the affidavit, but I would love to know whether the FBI has any evidence of why Donald Trump did this in the first place. Was he just being sloppy? Is he a pack rat? Or did he want to do something with these documents? And if so, what? It's There's really no good explanation for why he would have these documents. Phil, when you see this and look at this, and again, there's, and there is, we have not yet seen the aspect, and there's a lot of things that are redacted still. Maybe they are aware or they're following a particular thread. But when you see this, I mean, everyone's focusing on the general umbrella term classification. I'm curious as to never having seen Donald Trump during his presidency carry documents around, carry bags, carry suitcases, carry boxes. Do you have questions about who may have been assisting him to get and acquire and maintain this? Is the focus simply on Donald Trump, do you think, as to why he had him or why he was able to collect and retain Oh, heck no. My focus is on the people around him. I don't think the president will be prosecuted if you want my bottom line from the Mudd University of Law, which I wouldn't suggest going to. I do think the people around him have, have got to have some good lawyers. Number one, who was the lawyer who signed the document that says there's nothing left here? Mm. Did you either not know there were documents there? and In other words, you just signed a document and said whatever, or did you know and you lied? So there's questions about who covered this up, and then you recollect that the FBI has asked for the videos from Mar-a-Lago, who had access and took documents in or out, including especially people who had access who were not cleared. 
I think there's a lot of vulnerability for the people around the president, especially people who either lied about knowing whether their document's there or gave people access when people weren't cleared for access. access. Really basic questions, Laura. You know, one of the acronyms we haven't talked about here tonight, gentlemen, among all the classification is CYA. And I think about that when I think about sources. Who was able to provide information? What were they concerned with? And how did the investigators have their basis for probable cause? What were people afraid of? Were they people who had a hand, who were fearful that they might be accused? There's a lot of questions, and I suspect it's under these black lines we'll see. Bradley Moss, John Wood, Phil Mudd, thank you so much. I want to go back, Jessica Snyder, right now with that new information on another legal front in this investigation. Jessica, what's going on? So coming in just moments ago, we finally got that response from the Trump team that had been directed by a district court judge in the Southern District of Florida. Now, remember, it was just earlier this week that Trump's team filed in Florida federal court for a special master. Basically, they hadn't acted in two weeks on anything regarding the search warrant that was served at Mar-a-Lago. But what they did act on two weeks later was that they wanted a special master, a third party appointed, to sift through these documents that presumably the FBI has already been sifting through for two plus weeks and sort of separate some of the materials over concerns of attorney-client privilege, executive privilege, that was a little muddy because it wasn't even clear that there was even any materials that would have pertained to executive privilege since most of these documents pertain to uh, national defense information, classified material. Because the fear is if you you see it, you can't unring the bell. I can't be unseen. So have a separate team go and prevent it. Right. So that was what the Trump team wanted. When they filed their initial paperwork, though, in court, The judge was pretty biting and saying that you didn't do this remotely right. She Mm. said, first of all, look on the court's website. It will show you how to properly file this. She even said, I'm not even sure what you're asking for. Can you give me some of the legal basis for this? Why didn't you file it with the magistrate judge that is dealing with this search warrant? So tonight, Trump's team has come back with this filing, explaining a bit more to the judge exactly the basis for their request. However, Laura... You're an attorney. I'm an attorney. I do not practice in the Southern District of Florida. I don't I'm not good with motions practice, but I'm pretty sure that this actually does not satisfy what the judge was asking for. This doesn't really cure the deficiencies procedurally that this judge had talked about. This is still just a motion whereas they should have filed it either in connection with the search warrant or they should have filed something completely different, maybe um, trying to get an injunction or something to that effect. Um, This is a lengthy document where they do lay out some of their arguments. I'm still not sure that this is going to do the trick for the judge. Mm. One note, however, it was noted that two of the lawyers previously hadn't gone through the right admission procedures in Florida. It does, however, seem that they they, they corrected that. They're now admitted uh, in Florida, pro hoc vice. To be able to actually be in front of that court. And for the audience, I mean, thinking about a motion, it's asking the court to, you're moving the court, wanting them to move to do something. And part of the procedural deficiencies before where they were saying, you know, as part of their news release and press release, they were saying these, these documents were violative or the search of the Fourth Amendment, unreasonable yes. search and seizure. And normally you have to say that you want things to be suppressed or you're yes. normally a defendant before that happens. Right. Keep looking. We'll have yeah. to figure out if it even meets any of the criteria. We'll have to see. Thank you. It was due at midnight. It's here about a couple hours early. Thank you, Jessica. We're also going to look at what Republicans are saying about this affidavit as Trump considers capitalizing politically on the search by maybe launching a 2024 bid. 
Is that really next? Well, we'll see next. The redacted affidavit shaking the legal and political world has most of us maybe seeing black. It has Donald Trump maybe seeing red. And President Biden, he probably thought he'd seen it all until he heard Trump claim that he declassified all those documents at Mar-a-Lago. Today, President Biden offered his most expansive comments and mocking ones yet on the topic. President Trump said that he declassified all these documents. Could he have just declassified them all? Well, I just want to know I've declassified everything in the world. I'm president. I can do it all. Come on. Without a specialized area in which you would declassify documents, is it ever appropriate for a president to bring classified documents? It depends on the document and it depends on how secure we're bringing it. Time to talk about it now with former Democratic Senator Doug Jones, Alice Stewart, who worked for GOP Senator Ted Cruz, and Ramesh Panuru from the National Review. Let me start with you, Ramesh, because you've said before you don't think that he likely should have engaged in this way, um, President Biden, because, frankly, it might inure to the benefit, whether you like it or not, to Donald Trump. I want to just point to one thing. Trump has actually raised millions millions off of the FBI search. And the contributions actually topped a million dollars in the days after the search. And just so a comparison point, they were up from $200,000 a day to $300,000 $300, a day. And his political committee has raised over $100 million broadly since he left office. So is that part of the reason why you would have thought, Biden, shh, this is not for you? Well, I think that the more important thing is to restore the norm, which was part of the problem of the Trump administration that it eroded, that we don't get the presidents involved in this day-to-day investigations, the things that, investigations that are pending. But there's no question, I think, that this has strengthened Trump's hand within the Republican Party ever since the raid happened, or the search, depending on which term you prefer, it has helped his boost his standing within the Republican Party. That's a good point. The raid, the search, that's part of the talking point, right? Yeah, yeah. and I think I just got another ding from a, a PAC that wanting more uh, fundraising <laughs> money for... I'm getting the Democrat, it's okay. Look, I, look I, you got to give uh, President Biden and the administration credit for having plausible deniability on this from the very beginning. Uh, claiming and saying, and I believe they didn't know that this raid was going on. And and that's the good place to be as a president of the United States when the former president is under such intense scrutiny. But the key is moving forward to to maintain that level of distance. You don't take the bait when reporters ask you about it. You don't answer questions. You don't say, I'm going to declassify everything. You just refer every question to the DOJ and the FBI and keep is it realistic? I mean, I mean, damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? If he had been quiet, just to be fair, they would have said, oh, I wonder why Biden's not saying anything. Must be something there. I mean, the same reason you hear about talking points. Oh, what's redacted? What's underneath the black line? It reminds you of what's that movie Seven? What's in the box? What's in the box from Brad Pitt? Like, what's underneath <laughs> it, right? That was a horrible impression, but it's Friday night, and Brad Pitt can't be done by anyone but Brad Pitt. Doug Jones, I, what do you think? You know, I, I agree with, with, with Alice. I, I, I think it would, it would have really been better for the president not to say anything. He has made such a point, and, and I think the American people appreciate that, and everybody does, that he is staying away from this. He's not getting involved. And, you know, I've known Joe Biden for a long time, and I was an off-the-cuff, and, you know, it, deep down, he's wanting to say a hell of a lot more mm. uh, about this. But he's, he's doing that, and it, that just came out. I, I just I think it, you won't see that happen again. 
Um, not that it's that big a deal, but I, I totally agree yeah. that he, this is something he should just let go uh, and let the Department of Justice do their job and let the chips fall where they're going to fall and let Donald Trump raise money off of it. Democrats are raising money off of all this stuff, too. Make no mistake. Mm. It is a political issue for everybody. So um, we're, we're, it's just the world we're living in today. It's unfortunate. I mean, it's true that I mean, this is not just a singular issue of who is able to capitalize off of the news of the day. But when you think about it, now that he has said something, he has said something. And we are 70-something days away from the midterm elections. Trump's not on the ballot in name. Of course, his shadow and his endorsements are, and his policies in many respects are. Um, But you have Republicans who are not wanting to engage, perhaps, as well, who are thinking, let me try to distance myself, but have a very difficult needle to thread. I can't not... I mean, the, the election lies are one thing. Now it's I have to agree that the FBI search was a problematic raid. Otherwise, I've got problems. Right. Well, look, a lot of people got way ahead of their skis on this Mm. and automatically assumed this was an overreach, this was a witch hunt, this was prosecutorial uh, overreach. Now we're seeing more and finding out more, and we're seeing maybe not so much. I think you don't have people coming back, though. They're not not changing their tune, though. There's a lot of Republicans. There was a lot of news cycles ago. A lot of Republicans are are keeping uh, their cards a little closer to the vest these days and not weighing in because they really want to see what is there to be seen. They were a little disappointed with the uh, affidavit that came out today with so much of it being redacted, understanding that the methods and sources need to be protected. But they wish there was a little bit more transparency and a little more answers to come out. And maybe we'll see this, you know, when we saw the, the Trump's uh, putting out the, uh, uh, the appeal for the special master, we should get more information out of that. Maybe. I, I, think it was, I think it was fair for Republicans to say that the bar has to have been high and that they needed to have real evidence yes. uh, and that they were going to adopt a wait-and-see posture with that high bar to clear. Obviously, a lot of them felt this incentive to go way further than just saying that. On the redactions, one thing that's kind of interesting there, that is one of the lines we're hearing from a lot of Republicans, especially Trump's top supporters. But it's interesting, as part of the sluggish legal response that Trump's team had, they didn't even really ask for the unsealing of this affidavit. The most they did was to agree with the Justice Department when, uh, when oh, excuse me, the, the, the warrant, the original warrant. Yeah. Th- then they've just been sluggish at every stage. And remember that the, the redactions are not just the Department of Justice. Those were suggestions by the Department of Justice. Yeah. This is the court's redactions. Right. This is the independent branch of government that redacted this. At the end of the day, all the DOJ was charged to do, and that's all they did, was make suggestions. At the judge's order, they made suggestions. And it's the judge who redacted this thing. And I I, I do think that as we go forward, Democrats have to keep keep talking about this. They have to keep reminding and they need to challenge their opponents. What is your position on this now? How has it changed? And by the way, do you think think Donald Trump... uh, violated his constitutional duties before, during, and after January 6th, and and tie all this a little bit together, even though clearly the one thing that hadn't been talked about very much here, Laura, is that the Florida case seems to be standing on its own. And and a really important thing is said that it is in its early stages. So I think that that... Not, not just early. We're in the, this is a probable cause base. Like, yes. And we still don't yet know what is in the documents. We have the categories, but what's in them, that's the meat on the bone, truly. Doug Jones, Alice Stewart, Ramesh Panuru, thank you so much.
And coming up, you've heard from the left and you've heard from the right on the president's student loan forgiveness plan. But Catherine Rampell joins with an expert look at the numbers and what they mean for all of us taxpayers. Plus, the rough ride on Wall Street. Down more than now a 1,000 today. We're coming right back. There's trouble on Wall Street. The Dow plunging more than 1,000 points today after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said he expects continued rate hikes to tame inflation. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. Joining me now, CNN economic commentator, Catherine Rampell. Catherine, when you hear that, and when most people hear that, some pain, they wonder, what does he mean? So what will this mean for America's pocketbooks? I think what the chair of the Federal Reserve was trying to tell markets was that the Fed is laser-focused, completely committed to getting inflation down, uh, even if it is painful. And the reason why he wants to hammer home that message is that he doesn't want markets to think the Fed will lose its nerve, right? If there is a plunge in the stock market, as there was today, the Fed is not going to get spooked and say, maybe we're tightening too quickly. Uh, one month of data, uh, which was uh, something else he referenced uh, this morning, one month of, of relatively good or encouraging inflation data won't be enough uh, to, to get them to stop their laser focus on getting inflation down. And it's really important for them to credibly convince markets that that's what they're doing, because otherwise uh, there is a fear that people will continue to expect high inflation and that that expectation will become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they really want to convince markets that they are tough on this, they're hawkish, and maybe that in and of itself will mean that they don't have to be quite as tough going forward. I got a thing all people heard was there's going to be some pain. You know, just thinking about the nuance of there it. People, they hear that. There may be some pain. But you know what? Some people didn't anticipate it might be a painful reaction by some when it came to student debt relief. And I want to go there because this has been a big debate around the country, as you well know, about student debt and the forgiveness plan laid out by President Biden. And many are hailing it as something that's going to be very beneficial and it will be great for um, so many people. And it likely will be. But you argue that it to kind of slow down a little bit. What's your thought? Yeah, so my basic thought on this is that there are a lot of Americans who are struggling under the uh, very difficult burden of student loans. Um, They are people, for example, who were defrauded by fly-by-night for-profit universities, or they enrolled in some sort of post-secondary program and they took on debt, but they never got their degree, so they never got the payoff of that debt. Or they got a degree that is considered basically worthless by the labor market. Uh, They're never going to earn enough to be able to pay back their loans. Those are definitely people we should be helping. However, the way that this plan is structured involves helping a lot of other people who probably don't need assistance. I'm thinking people like um, a recently graduated MBA who the last couple of years didn't have much earnings, but is about to start an investment banking job. Uh, That person is going to get 10 grand wiped off of his or her debt. Uh, Somebody who looks like they're, they're relatively modest earners right now, someone who's like in a plastic surgery residency, maybe making $60,000, $70,000, but in a couple of years will make $400,000. That person 
however, you know, beneficial their work is to the world, however much they might deserve that salary, probably doesn't need um, this same level of help. Well, and on so that I notion, can, though, but yeah. on that notion, Catherine, you know, I, I can hear the retorts coming right now and the idea of, OK, well, if it's about entitlement and who really deserves to benefit and who might have a windfall. Look at corporate America. I mean, all the time they're getting benefits when they don't especially need it compared to the little guy. How do you respond? Uh, just because there's a wasteful use of money in, in one part <laughs> of uh, government policy doesn't justify in another part of government policy. Look, resources are finite. If we have learned nothing from the last couple of years, it's that the government can't just spend exponentially and, and, and we should expect no consequences for the economy, right? I mean, a tax dollar spent on one thing is a tax dollar that cannot be spent on something else. I know people don't always think that way, but, but that is how it works in the long run. In the long run, this will have to be paid for by someone. It is essentially a transfer to people who went to college by people who didn't go to college. Um, so it's a transfer to about 30 million Americans from about 300 million Americans. And again, some of them are really struggling, but not all of them are. And I just wish that this plan were much more targeted uh, than it actually is. And it, it could have been much less mm. expensive, in fact, than it is. I mean, the, the ballpark estimates from places like the Penn Wharton budget model are uh, about $600 billion mm. um, if there's no behavioral change and possibly a trillion dollars if people end up taking on more debt, as they're likely to do because of the way this plan is structured. Well, we will see what the impacts will be. The arguments on both sides are coming in. But remember, obviously, even debt holders are also taxpayers. Catherine Rampell, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, NASA is getting ready to party like it's 1969. Sorry about that, but it is kind of funny. The space agency is about to launch its first flight to the moon in decades, and the excitement is building. I'll talk with a retired astronaut about the new era for space travel and the prospect of humans going back up there next. The countdown is on. This is what NASA's massive Artemis rocket on the launch pad right now looks like at the Kennedy Space Center. Ready to blast off towards the moon this coming Monday. The unmanned test mission is the one giant leap for NASA's plan to put Americans back on the moon for the first time in half a century. And joining me now to discuss, retired NASA astronaut Leland Melvin. It's so nice to see you. I'm glad you're here what an exciting time for so many people. Can you just put this into perspective, Leland, what this might mean? Laura, thanks for letting me come on and talk about this really incredible historical moment. Because the last time that someone walked on the moon was in 1972, December 14th, Gene Cernan. And now we're going back to the moon, launching 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust, the largest rocket ever made, going around the moon for 42 days. And we're going to have Artemis 1, which is a, a first uncrewed test mission, Artemis 2 and Artemis 3, which is going to get maybe the first person of color and the first woman walking on the Martian surface one day. So this is really something that I think all kids and from all zip codes can think about themselves being part of this Artemis generation. It's amazing. And just for the record, audience, even though we have matching colors on, I am not the black woman who might be on the moon. <laughs> Someday, but you tell never me a little know. bit. You never yeah. know, Laura. You, well, you know, are you asking? I might do it. I don't know. I've trained enough to do it. But you know what? I wonder for people, how, why is this so important? Why is it 
that this is such a critical part of our general exploration? And, and why has it taken so long to get to where we are now since the last time someone was on the moon? You know, that's a good question. Um, it's so important because we as human beings, in our DNA, we are wired to be explorers. When we're little kids, we look up at the night sky and we say, what's up there? We have this curiosity. And I think as we continue to explore past our home planet, it helps us take care of our home planet. We come up with new technologies. We're looking at ways to um, mitigate radiation. And that radiation could, you know, come down on our planet one day if, you know, things go awry with climate change and other things. And so it's a way that we can take care of our home planet by continuing to explore off the planet. It's taken so long, really, because, um, you know, there was a war in Vietnam that was going on. So we shut down that program. But then we kicked up the, you know, the program with uh, sending people to the International Space Station to do research up there. And we're continuing that probably until 2030. But exploration is past our home planet to the moon and then maybe one day to the Mars and living and working on another planet. And we've seen these images from the James Webb Space Telescope for trying to understand you know, what happened to that Big Bang 13 billion years ago? You know, what was that? What was that like? And so the more we explore, the more we learn about ourselves. And I think that's critically important. Well, Leland, the way you describe it, it makes me so excited to think about it. I mean, the charisma, it's what we all think about in terms of what is up there and what will we find out about this? And, you know, every person, young at heart, and somebody who's not, just thinking about all the different ways of what it could mean. I mean, just thinking about those images we've seen from the Webb telescope versus this, are we expecting to have a sort of tor- a turnaround and what we might learn? Is there a timeline for what we might be able to glean from these journeys? Definitely, Laura. You know, when you, when you go past your comfort zone, you find ways to solve problems that you would have probably never have figured out if you didn't go past that comfort zone. So living and working on another celestial body, the moon, say, uh, you have to figure out how to build a habitat. You have to figure out how to harvest water from the lunar soil. How do you keep yourself warm and and how do you keep yourself cool? All of these things we have to solve. We have these mannequins on the vehicle that are, you know, learning how to mitigate radiation. They're, they have sensors, they're outfitted. And so, so we've, we test with dummies first and then we send you know, our astronauts up to solve some of these other problems. And so I think that's the critical part of, and getting your kids excited. Think about that. I mean, you might have one of your little ones saying, hey, mommy, I'm going to go to the moon one day, or I'm going to Mars one day. And to light that curiosity in our children, all of our children, to say that this is mission possible for them. I think that's another critical piece of what we do when we explore That's so important. Although if my kids don't start making up their beds, I might send them to the moon regardless of what happens next. I'm telling you that right now after watching, you know what I'm talking about. But it is so important. It's important to see you in the position that you're in, to be able to be that really ambassador of the exploration for people to really see it and to get excited in what we're seeing. I mean, this is really exploration in real time. And I'm so excited for this coming Monday. Are you going to be watching? Where are you going to be? What's your watch party going to be like? I'm going to be talking to some an, another person like yourself during that 7.30 to 2.30 hours. So I will be uh, a talking head like this, but uh, but I'm going to be so excited when this thing lifts off because I'm going to think about, you know, maybe one day I may get another chance. Maybe we'll go together. You know, we've been in our blue suits and we'll head off to the moon maybe one day. 
I mean, I'll do it. I like astronaut ice cream. I'll do the whole thing. Former astronaut <laughs> Leland Melvin, thank you so much. A pleasure to speak with you in particular. Likewise, Laura. Thank you. And we'll go from a rocket to a booster. The next COVID booster, that is, could be days away from authorization. Will it do anything to curb the rebound cases we're seeing? And, and how effective is Paxlovid? Paxlovid, excuse me. We'll get insight next. In a matter of days, a coronavirus booster targeting the Omicron variant could be authorized for Americans within days. The FDA says the decision is expected next week. So what does this mean for you? Let's talk about with epidemiologist Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's also the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Osterholm, thank you for being here. Tell me, how much protection will this give people? Well, first of all, we have to understand that there's a big difference between having a vaccine and a vaccination. And so it should be obvious to everyone. But right now, uh, the highest risk for having serious illness and dying is actually in those over age 65, uh, second, those 50 to 64. And yet in those two age groups, only about 25 percent of those over 65 have received two booster doses to date only 11% of those 50 to 64. So this new vaccine, which surely can be helpful, is not gonna do much if we can't get the rate of vaccination increased substantially, and that's been a big challenge. Tell me about Paxlovid. We're hearing a lot more about it and the idea of rebound cases. What is the correlation? Well, first of all, is we really have, I think, uh, not f- fully understood the role that Paxlovid plays because all we talk about is if you have taken Paxlovid, do you have a rebound or do you get, in a sense, a second set of symptoms some days after appearing to recover? Well, you're right. It is happening. But there's been two recent studies that actually show that about 30% of people who don't ever take Paxlovid also have rebounds, meaning that they have that same clinical picture. So to say that Paxlovid is caused that I think is a real stretch right now. And we do know that Paxlovid can be very effective in those, particularly over age 65, in keeping you out of the hospital, keeping you from getting serious illness and dying. So it's really important that we do continue to recommend Paxlovid. And don't be distracted by this rebound issue because, in fact, it may not even be part of the Paxlovid picture. It could be incidental in some way. Fascinating to think about that. Finally, I have to ask you, as many parents are having their kids go back to school, and some already have, there was an elementary student in Georgia who tested positive for monkeypox. And I'm wondering, this is traditionally impacting adults, how concerned should parents be and really the general population of people be? The cases of monkeypox will continue to be primarily occurring among men who have sex with men, with uh, multiple partners, anonymous partners. Occasionally, rarely, we'll see contact occurring between someone's arms and a child or bed sheets or a towel where you may have transmission, but it'll be very, very rare. And I actually think within the next several weeks, you're going to see a major reduction in monkeypox, even here in the United States, among all groups, including men who have sex with men. I certainly hope so for the effect of everyone thinking about all of the different things that are happening right now. And it's important to think about how what's ahead. We're going into, obviously, another fall season, flu season, discussions about flu shots, as you said so eloquently at the very beginning. The difference between having a vaccine and a vaccination, things are only as good as if you're actually taking them and, of course, following along the science. Dr. Olsterholm, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you, Laura. 
And hey, everyone, thank you for watching. I want you to stay tuned for Never Again, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum tour with Wolf Blitzer. That's next here on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.